John Howard Semple, Chief Constable, Brotty Ferry Borough Police Force. The hall where the body was found was in a very disordered state and bore evidence of a desperate struggle having taken place. I noted that there was a telephone wall instrument in the hall and that the telephone wires connecting it had been cut. Being satisfied with these that Miss Milne had been murdered, I gave instructions that the body was not to be touched or anything in the house disturbed. I then went to the nearest telephone and got into communication with Dr. Sturrock, Brotty Ferry, the police surgeon, informed him that Miss Milne had been found dead in our house at Elmgrove and asked him to meet me there at the earliest possible moment. The date was Sunday the 3rd of November, 1912, and after a local postman had alerted police to the fact that the postbox at Elmgrove, a mansion house in Brotty Ferry near Dundee, had not been emptied for some time, the police went to investigate. What they found was the scene of a brutal and bloody murder. The sides of the stair railings at the foot of the stair and on the wall to the right of the stairs were bespattered with blood. I saw blood-stained hairs adhering to the railings. The victim was a woman called Jean Milne, a 69-year-old spinster who lived on her own and was something of a mystery to the local community. If you want to find out more about Jean Milne, go and listen to episode two if you haven't done so already. In this third episode of the Inside Forensic Science podcast from the Levy-Hume Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee, we're back at the scene to consider how the investigation team in 1912 started to piece together what had happened to Jean Milne and what developments in forensic science since then might have added to our understanding of the violent and shocking events of her death. I carefully examined the surroundings of the scene of the crime which undoubtedly had been committed in the hall of the house at the foot of the stairs leading to the upper apartment. After the discovery of Jean Milne's body, Detective Lieutenant John Trench is sent from Glasgow to assist in the investigation. He heads straight to Elm Grove to look at the scene. The following words are taken from the evidence files of the case against the main suspect, Charles Warner. You'll find a link on the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee's website if you want to go through the files as you listen. We've had Trench's words voiced by an actor, but it's interesting to note the language he uses is much more colloquial than some of the others in the files. The hall and the stairs were heavily carpeted. I observed on the third step from the hall floor a large splotch of blood and on the sides of the stair railings at the foot of the stair and on the wall to the right of the stairs were traces of blood as if the deceased lady had been knocked down on the steps and struggling to rise her blood-stained clothing had come in contact with the stair railing. What Detective Lieutenant Trench was doing by instinct Analysing the blood at the scene is now an area of forensic science in its own right. I am Alex Prentice. I am the Principal Crown Counsel in Crown Office. Crown Office is headed by the Lord Advocate, who is responsible for the investigation of suspicious deaths and the prosecution of crime, amongst other things. Blood spatter analysis is very much a science which has developed, and there are people who are highly skilled in the interpretation of blood spatter. Blood can form splashes 
spots, sprays, uh, all sorts of shapes, which can give an indication of direction, depending on the shape. It can be an indication of an article striking wet blood and then being drawn away from that and casting the blood onto something else. So that can be very significant. There have been cases where, for example, drops of blood found on the back of the accused person were, were interpreted as being put there by a, a, an item being used to strike the deceased and the item being raised above the head, causing the spatter to result on the back of the, the jersey worn by the accused. I've read the G. Milne um, case file. Joe Millington is a forensic scientist specialising in bloodstain pattern analysis, or BPA for short, who we asked to look at the Jean Milne case. And I find it absolutely fascinating, quite honestly, because to say it's from, you know, early 1900s, 1912, I think, that the descriptive terms used by those individuals who first stepped into that scene are actually really powerful. Well, the very best information that you can get from BPA is it'll almost give you a complete narrative on on activities that have taken place once blood has started to um, be lost and injuries have been sustained. So you first read the accounts provided by the officers in this case and they say that there's a splotch of blood found on the stairway and I read that and my, you know, the, the hackles on my neck went up a little bit and I thought, oh my goodness me, this is just crazy words for BPA. <laughs> but at the end of the day, do you know what? I, I know precisely what he's talking about. It's a splotch. It's a, a deposition of blood on the stairs. It's affiliated with around it and in, and in the vicinity of it, a number of smears and other transfer blood stains that, that this individual is looking at and, and, and getting this perception that there's been movement, there's been multiple positions of, of Miss Milne through the scene after she's been injured. He then stitches that together with other contextual information about items and things that have been knocked over and stuff that she's collected from the garden, which has then just been dropped in the scene on top of blood. So you can start to see that there is a real dynamic quality to this. I was shown a broken poker, which had been found at the scene of the tragedy. The poker is an ordinary cast metal poker, about 13 inches long, with a round metal head. It had broken about half an inch from the head and both parts were bloodstained. I was also shown the deceased lady's clothing, which was considerably bloodstained. I was informed that the result of the post-mortem examination showed that the death was due to shock and hemorrhage, probably caused by the succession of blows to the head of the deceased lady by the poker, which was found at the scene of the crime. I was also shown a carving fork, which, I understand, was found near the body of the deceased lady. The carving fork has a white bone handle and the prongs are about three inches in length, tapering outwards, and the fork has the usual steel guard at the back. Tuck the knowledge of that carving fork away, because it's going to prove significant when it comes to the post-mortem, which we'll hear about shortly, mainly for the fact it's overlooked. 
Note that Trench, who visits the scene after the post-mortem, doesn't yet know how important it is. Apart from the fact that the, the attack sounds absolutely horrendous, you know, th- going over probably a, a, a period of time under which she's sustaining injury after injury, but the blood and the distribution of it up the stairs and then in the area in the hall where she's ultimately found, which is affiliated with what he describes as a drag mark. I think he says there's blood concentrated on the floor and it's in a direct line with her head, which to me suggests movement and perhaps her having moved or been moved by a third party. You can see that at the end of it, a number of conclusions have been drawn about this case in terms of her injuries and the circumstances under which she was assaulted and and then the the activities that have taken place to perhaps try and conceal her body and you know and 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 to cover the tracks of the perpetrator and 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 all of those have come out in pretty um confident conclusions and i think i thought to myself had i have been there at the time doing the bpa I don't think the conclusions would have been that different. There would have just been a, an extra seam of information that they could have taken on board that would have essentially corroborated where they got to in the end anyway. You know, so I, I really did find this case utterly fascinating because, because we always look retrospectively back at historic cases and think, oh, if only they'd had this particular test then it would have been so much better but actually they did a pretty good job had the officers had any sort of knowledge of forensic science as it was developing at the time then I've got no doubt that they would know that blood stains could give them some information about how how blood was transferred and deposited I've got no, no doubt in my mind and especially if they've seen other blood stains I'm not saying other murder cases because I think at the time this was relatively uncommon in that particular area but I'm certain they've been to bar brawls and pub pub dosh ups and stuff and and have seen people with you know bleeding noses and you know um, glass injuries and bits and bobs like that so I'm absolutely certain that they weren't um, a stranger to blood staining at scenes, and they they will have known from the stain features and their observations and the morphology that you know they're following a drip trail to the house of the suspect, and you know they, they'd have used it as a tool. Um, I've got no doubt in my mind. It's just that we don't have that formal framework around it that says. In, these, in this case file under the section bloodstain pattern analysis. These are our observations. It's just threaded throughout. The idea that bloodstains could be used as a tool to provide insights into the events at a crime scene was established long before Jean Milne's murder. But it wasn't until some 40 years after her death that it became more firmly established within forensic science. Well, 1950s is when... BPA really started to be recognised as a discipline within its own right. One of the main cases that is um, sort of cited is the the case of Dr Shepherd in Ohio. 
BPA was a really big part of that case. And beyond that then, sort of the probably 1980s, we started to come together as a discipline and we've developed the IABPA, which is the International Association of Bloodstain Pattern Analysts, of which, you know, we're, we're professional members. But at that point then, we started to build a body of, of work around the historic developments around BPA, and then we started to almost retrospectively validate our thinking around the discipline. So I suppose you could say that from the mid 1900s onwards is when it really started to be recognised as a discipline in its own right. Let's turn our attention now to Jean Milne's body and the information it might yield about how she died. In order to do that, we're going to step back a day to when Jean Milne's body was first discovered and join Chief Constable Semple and first up Sergeant John Forbes in their accounts from the evidence files. I found about two feet nine inches from the foot of the stair, Miss Milne lying on the carpet on the floor with her head towards the entrance, her feet towards the way leading towards the dining room. On making examination, I found that she was all blood on the top of her head and her face was much swollen. She was lying on her right side, her left arm lying across her right arm, stretched out in front of her body. Her clothes were all full of blood. A half-cotton sheet doubled, uncovering her back and back of head. I saw at once decomposition had set in. On further examination, I found her legs were tied at the ankles with a green curtain rope. Produced number two. There are six steps in the stair leading to the first turning. From there, there are nine steps to the next turning, and on the square flat landing, there was lying a green curtain rope produced similar to the rope with which the deceased's legs were tied. The bloodstained trimming of hat produced was lying partly underneath the deceased's body. The stone produced was found lying inside the door of the cloakroom. The carving fork produced was found on the floor near the body, the prongs being partly under the open travelling case. The prongs and bone handle of the fork were bloodstained. I made this examination pending the arrival of Dr. Sturrock. I also gave instructions to Mr. T.K. Rodden, the borough surveyor, to come to Elmgrove to take certain measurements and also to Mr. Roger, photographer, to take certain photographs produced. When Dr. Sturrock reached Elmgrove at 11 o'clock forenoon, I pointed out all these things to him. I then, with the doctor, made a more minute examination of the body. The body was fully dressed. The clothes on the upper part of the body were much bloodstained. On the body of the deceased were a gold watch, chain and appendage, and six gold finger rings, all produced. At 5pm, the body was lifted onto a shell as it was lying on the floor without disturbing the clothing. At 5.13pm, I accompanied witness Cooley to the mortuary in Dundee and had the body placed there for the purpose of having a post-mortem examination by Professor Sutherland and Drs Sturrock and Templeman. The clothing taken off the body was taken here by Constable Sutty, but they've not yet been labelled and numbered. We're going to come back to the issue of how the clothing was dealt with because, as you'll hear, 
it was an important feature of the case. It's not a complicated scene. In, in terms of how it's presented, in, in terms of how the, the victim's found. I don't think kind of nowadays it would be seen by the kind of forensic science team as a, a, a difficult scene to process. Dr Kerry-Anne Shearer is a forensic pathologist based in Edinburgh and for her, one of the first things that struck her on reading the case files was the changing role of the police surgeon since 1912. They wouldn't be going into suspicious cases to determine whether they think it's suspicious or not and kind of comment on how things proceed. They certainly wouldn't be going to the post-mortem. I've never had a police surgeon at a post-mortem that I've, that I've undertaken. So that was really interesting, just how, just how things have changed, how processes have changed over the years from um, how it used to be done to how it's kind of done nowadays. The other really interesting thing from the scene for me I mean, to be fair, this is possibly not a scene that a forensic pathologist would have to go out to because it's we nowadays we are going out to scenes less and less. I mean, when I first started practising, I was out probably 10 to 20 scenes a year. Now I could probably count on the one hand the number of times that I'm requested to go to scenes. And there's there's different reasons for that. Kind of one of the the reasons is um, because the the whole way that the police and the fiscal approach these scenes is very difficult. A lot of the time, if they're found, kind of in the middle of the night or in late evenings, they are closed down. They are not processed, and the the team come together the following morning for a briefing to decide who needs to be inputting to that and who needs to be going to the scene and when. Uh, whereas in years gone by, and certainly back in that time everybody would have been involved from the get-go and everybody would have gone in at the same time. Uh, whereas now it's very much, it has to be processed properly, it has to be fully videoed, photographs taken, and then there'll be a discussion about all of that to decide on which are the right experts to go in at the right time. And often we can get as much information as we need from the scene, from photographs or from discussion, and there's really no need for us to go and see the body inside you. Kind of one of the, the main reasons and one of the that may have brought us to this scene if there's any signs of kind of sexual kind of misadventure and swabbing has to be done at the scene kind of sexual and intimate swabs will be done by the forensic pathologist as as opposed to the biologist who will do a lot of the other um swabbing so that that's one of the main reasons we get called to scenes nowadays that and they are very very complex and they do need our input at the scene in terms of what's going on, is it suspicious in body recovery and things, but uh, but nowadays it is very, very rare. And looking at this case, apart from if they were thinking there was a sexual nature to the crime, we probably wouldn't be at this scene, but it is really interesting just to see how they have processed it. Dr John Frederick Sturrock, MD, residing at Arima, Brook Street, Brotty Ferry. After examining the body, I came to the conclusion that Miss Milne had been murdered. I was present at the post-mortem examination of the body, which took place in the mortuary, Constitution Road, Dundee, at 8.30 that same evening. Today, more work would have been done in relation to gathering of evidence and gathering of samples before the body was removed. Because there is so much that we can detect, because there is so much that we can find in relation to hairs, fibres, DNA, fingerprints, 
it would take longer for the body to be removed properly in a modern investigation. Professor Lucina Hackman is a forensic anthropologist at the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee. So in a modern investigation, as, as was done at the time, the person who's going to establish cause of death is a forensic pathologist. So they will work always two forensic pathologists, and even in those days, two was in Scotland. So in Scotland, it's two forensic pathologists that work together on a suspicious death. And they will examine the body and undertake a full post-mortem. Now, if you've got something that's uh, suspected, like here, there's potential for blunt force trauma, um, which, which is exactly as it sounds, where somebody may have been hit by an object, uh, and there was some suspicion of that might have happened. Today, the body will be sent for imaging first before the post-mortem happens. Because with the imaging techniques that we have today, x-rays can be done, but or radiographs, I should say, but mainly CT scans. Because what a CT scan will do is show the body as it is before any post-mortem occurs. So it will show indications and, and give primary indications of where there might be trauma, places there might be cut marks on the bone. It will help with any stab wounds or anything. It's known in some countries as a vertopsy, where they actually have a look at the CT scan. And then that is combined with the post-mortem. But that CT scan will be looked at first. Because what that does is it helps the pathologist to actually target their investigation. Most murders and most situations um, it can be very obvious and very quick to find the cause of death but also if you've got information once you start the post-mortem you're going to lose information but that ct scan you can go back to it and you can say right before i started the post-mortem this is what the information was and now i can come back to so you can actually have something there that shows what everything was like before you changed it, if that makes sense. And certainly with blunt force trauma, where you've got something in the skull, where you've got fracturing of the skull, once you start the post-mortem, you can end up with small fragments of bone, for example, and then that becomes quite difficult to piece back together. We can, and as forensic anthropologists, we'll often work beside the forensic pathologist to help them to put those pieces of bone back together because what those pieces of bone, and once that um, skull is reassembled, you can actually start to see where blows may have occurred, which side of the head blows may have occurred, what order blows may have occurred. So you can actually start to say, well, this was the first blow, this was the second. So we can actually see that you've got maybe three or two or however many blows there are, because you can start to order them. And that gives you more information about what may or may not have occurred. In the Jean Milne case, then, a CT scan may have been able to reveal in detail how many times Jean Milne was struck on the head and in what order. So when you have a number of blows, especially on a bone such as a skull, which is essentially uh, a rounded bone. As the bone um, is, is impacted, it sets up fracture lines. And those fracture lines will go until they're stopped, usually by a suture. So your, your skull is actually made up by, of a number of different bones that are held together by sutures, which are a zigzaggy um, piece of bone that interlocks a bit like a zip but it's not like a zip but it, it, that's that's really it, as close as I can get as, to an, an, an analogy of how your suture looks but the suture is usually open it's it does fuse as you get older 
But until you hit something that's a, a, the fracture line hits something like that, that's gap, it will just carry on. The fracture line carries on until all of the force of the fracture has dissipated. What happens then if you get a second fracture, which sets up another set of fracture lines, is those fracture lines will again go through the bone until they are stopped by the first set of fracture lines because they can't jump the gap because you've got a gap in the bone. So the force can't jump the gap. So the force dissipates into the gap that's left by the first fracture line. So what you do is it's like it is a bit of a puzzle. So you trace back which fracture lines are stopped by other fracture lines. And the fracture lines that stop the second set, they belong to the first blow. We've no way of finding out retrospectively which may have been the first blow that Jean Milne received. As CT scans weren't available then, her fully clothed body was taken straight to the mortuary for post-mortem. There is very little information about the post-mortem in the evidence files, but what little there is points to definite differences in comparison to how things would be conducted in a modern investigation. As we've heard, Dr Sturrock, the medical officer, was called to the scene by Chief Constable Semple. He describes the post-mortem in his statement. So let's hear first from Dr Sturrock, then our own contemporary forensic pathologist, Dr Kerry-Ann Shearer, will talk us through those differences. The post-mortem examination was conducted by Dr Charles Templeman and Professor Sutherland. On taking off the clothes, I noticed in the top spencer a split stitch, which struck me as not having been due to wear. And so remembering the fork, I wondered whether it could have been caused by the fork. One of the other really interesting things is the process of the clothing, which seems to become a major factor. It's not removed until the post-mortem. Doesn't sound as if it's looked at at all. That just would not happen today. Though clothes would be looked at inside you while the body is still at the scene and would be thoroughly photographed, would be swabbed and taped, I would imagine, but not by us, but by a, a forensic biologist. And any defects that would have that are obviously there would have been noted and would have been relayed to us. Their clothes will be removed at the scene. Nine times out of ten nowadays, that body will not reach the PM room fully clothed because, um, and it makes perfect sense, evidence will be lost because if you are sending a body to the PM room fully clothed, chances are bodily fluids are leaking out, blood's leaking out, things are getting contaminated. And it may be that they they bring them to the post-mortem room for us to have a look at it to compare with wounds. That's happening less and less often because the primary purpose of these clothes should be to get forensic evidence from them, so to get DNA evidence of the kind of perpetrator or perpetrators. So uh, that's what we have to put at the top of the list. So if we are taking those to the PM room and there's a chance of that being compromised, then we're just not going to do it. And we could do it further on down the line once the biologists have had a chance to look at those in the lab and take all of the evidence they have. There's no way in the world a body would now get to the PM room, the body would be stripped in the PM room and the, pre the forensic pathologist wouldn't have an idea that there's a number of um, defects in, in that clothing. When the clothes were taken off, I noticed on the right side of the chest two round punctures, which I thought might have been caused by the fork. I drew attention of the doctors performing the examination to the punctures and it was suggested by them that they were maggot holes. 
I noticed that at the PM, the, the two pathologists doing the, the post-mortem had been very dismissive by the signs of it, of Dr. Sturrock pointing out these defects and have basically said they think it's maggots, or they, they think it's kind of animal predation, and that, that is a possibility. But that has to be taken in conjunction with whatever else you're finding and also what you're finding on the body. On the suggestion of Mr Semple, I asked whether Miss Milne had been criminally assaulted. The doctors who made the examination said there was no appearance of it. I suggested to the doctors making the examination that the back be examined. The body was lifted by the left shoulder, thus raised from the table, and it was said by the doctors making the examination that there were only post-mortem marks on the back. And that is, pretty much, all the information we have about Jean Milne's post-mortem. Contrast that with Dr Kerry-Ann Shearer now talking us through the extraordinarily detailed process of a modern post-mortem. In Scotland, we have the, the double doctor system because we have corroboration. So any forensic post-mortem, homicide post-mortem is done by two forensic pathologists. So there'll be one forensic pathologist leading the case who will be doing all of the injury description and the other forensic pathologist doing note-taking and just corroborating uh, with lots of discussion between them about what they're, they're seeing. Um, also, kind of there will will be kind of corroborating police officers, so productions officers for taking the various investigations that we will take. So in this sort of case, before we even start in the PM room, before we start putting a, a knife to skin, there's probably a, a vast number of samples that we would take, even though hopefully the body would have been fully sampled by forensic scientists at the scene. There's then other samples that we would take at the post-mortem. So things like we would take head hair, important in this case because they are finding bits of hair on the railings in the house. So there's bits of hair around with congealed blood on. So they're going to want to do comparison. They're going to want to prove that that's definitely from this lady and not potentially from the perpetrator or for some from somebody else that's in the house. We would take a swab, swabs of her mouth, Again, looking for perpetrator's DNA, potentially, if there's been any sort of swap of saliva or any kind of cells that can cross contamination. Um, we would take um, fingernail scrapings. So, again, there has been some sort of assault in this case. So there very well maybe have been a, been a cross or an altercation, a close altercation between uh, Miss Milne and the perpetrator. So potentially, if she's scraped the the person or got his DNA under his fingernails, we want to capture that. So that will be taken at post-mortem. And the other thing, chances are with this, because she's a lady and the circumstances, sexual swabs would be, if they weren't done at the scene, they would be done uh, fully at post-mortem. So that the first thing we would do is collect all of these productions and they will be given to the corroborating police officers that will be present at the post-mortem and anything that, that has come with her. Often at the scene, the forensic scientist and the crime scene manager will bag different parts of the body, potentially put bags over the heads to, to stop contamination, to stop kind of blood and um, kind of saliva or whatever mixing with the rest of the body, bag hands potentially if we are still to take fingernail scrapings. So those bags will also be taken as productions and given to the police, so they'll be lodged by police for analysis at a later date if, if required. 
And so after we've done that, there'll be full photography of the case. So we will have a photographer, a police photographer there who will take full photos of the body before we've even touched the body. So while it's the body's still unclean, if you like, showing any blood patterns that are on the body. And then we will clean the body completely and then fully photograph after for clean photos. And it's only then that we then start the kind of proper post-mortem examination. Photography and imaging now forms a key part of any modern investigation. We don't know if photographs were taken of Jean Milne's body. We do know that photographs were taken at the scene in 1912 because they're mentioned in the evidence files. But so far as we know, they no longer exist. We look for, initially, for distinguishing features like hair colour, eye colour, scars, tattoos and all of that sort of stuff has to be documented. We look at post-mortem changes. It's, these, these are less important when it comes to examining in the PM room because there's obviously going to be a delay from when the person's died to when they're found, to when they're taken to the PM room. They're going to be refrigerated, which can affect the changes as well. But we'll all, always document the post-mortem changes like hypostasis, which is blood pooling in the body after gravity. So whatever way the body's been lying after death, the blood will pull towards gravity, so pull towards the floor. So if they're lying on their back, their hypostasis, which is this kind of red colour in the skin, will pull on the back of the, the body. And it can give us an idea if the body has been moved after death. Rigor mortis is the kind, when the, the muscles become very kind of fixed after death. Again, there's rules of thumbs about how quickly it comes on and how quickly it leaves. But it's a, it's a very non-specific, we can't, certainly can't say to the nearest second and minute how long a person has been dead, but that it will be documented in the PM room. And any decomposition, which is sounds as if she, she probably had a degree of, so it maybe give us an idea of a, a large time frame. It certainly won't be specific, but it can give us an idea of how long she may have been dead uh, to when she's she's been found. But again, it's so non-specific because there are so many different factors that can increase decomposition, decrease on decomposition. So it's impossible to be specific. And after we've done that, now we're on to the kind of nitty gritties. That This is when we're looking at injuries. So we will examine the body from top to tail. Every part of, of, of the skin surface will be examined for any injuries. Um, so we're talking about tiny little abrasions down to kind of 0.1 centimetre up to any massive injuries. Whatever you're seeing, we will be documenting. I mean, I've, I've done postmortems where the external examination has taken me several hours sometimes if there's a huge number of injuries. So this can be the, the really long, time-consuming part of the postmortem, but the really important part. And certainly in this case, I, I'm obviously, I would be really keen to know what injuries does she have in her face and in her, her head in terms of blunt force injuries. Does she have lacerations, abrasions, bruising? What extent are they? Um, how how um, big are they? Especially lacerations in terms of the bleeding um, possibilities given the cause of death that they've been given. And the other thing, the really important thing in this case is all of the areas where they've saw these defects in the the skin in the clothes what am I seeing on the skin surface and what type of injuries are they are they superficial do they look deeper um, and also they have mentioned maggots and there does sound as if there's a bit of decomposition so I, I, I obviously want to document 
the decomposition around these injuries and the possibility that they are uh, related to insects, but that would have to be looked at really, really closely um, externally. So before I've even, again, put knife to skin, I hopefully should have a reasonable idea of what I'm maybe going to find once I start cutting. It has to be remembered that people don't die because they have a, a, a stab wound on their chest, if you like. They die because the knife has gone through into their chest and hit a major organ and caused major bleeding. So it is so important to correlate what you're seeing externally with what you're seeing internally. Um, and that's, in, in this case, certainly I, I'm, I, I'm at a loss to say what they're actually seeing internally apart from it doesn't sound as if she has a, a skull fracture. We're going to continue with detailing the internal examination now with Dr Kerri-Ann Shearer. If that's something you find difficult to listen to, then skip ahead about five minutes when we'll be picking up the Jean Mound story with a postscript on her clothing that you won't want to miss. So we would then, internal examination would be opening up the head so the scalp is um, peeled back from the head and using a saw the skull is opened um, so we can see every part of the skull and see if there's any obvious skull fractures. We can also have a look at the internal scalp because often you may not see any injuries externally but you can actually see injuries internally on the scalp that underlies the skin. So it may give us an idea of an impact that we're not necessarily seeing externally, especially in people with lots of thick, thick hair, um, short of having to shave off the hair to look underneath. Um, it can be really difficult to see kind of smaller injuries, if you like. So it's really important to have a really good look at inside the skull. And if you have to shave the hair, you have to, you obviously have to do that if you need to get a, a better picture externally as well. That will be done in, in some cases. So a really good look at the skull, if there's any skull fracturing, and our, uh, the brain. So what happens is we, we take the, the brain out of the skull cap and we will obviously closely look at it. So we'll document any evidence of trauma, any evidence of kind of extradural hemorrhage, subdural hemorrhage, anything that suggests that there's a traumatic injury to the brain. Also natural disease if it's present as well. But what I would imagine I'd do in the, this case, I would then keep that whole brain. So I would put it in formulin to fix for a period. And I would contact our, our local neuropathologist. They would then take this brain, they would examine the whole brain and they would forensically sample that brain to look at it down the microscope. And I would get a separate neuropathology report telling me what they're finding, if there's any traumatic brain injury, if there's any natural disease and if I'm, I'm looking at potentially brain injury being involved with the cause of death. So I imagine in this case, that would be would be one of the cases that I would definitely keep a whole brain on. We're then looking at kind of the rest of the body. So a post-mortem examination removes all organs given we're looking at potential facial and head injury, I would also look on look at the bones of the face because uh, the facial bones are very, a bit like the skull, they're difficult to fracture because they're quite thick bones. So if I, if you've got fractures of, of any of them, there, then there's been a significant blunt force impact to those areas. Kind of coming down internally, we, we'd look, I mean, in any case, we look very closely at the neck um, just in terms of, is there any signs of, of neck compression, but especially in females? Um, I would have looked externally to see if there was any particular hemorrhages in the eyes, which can be a sign of neck compression. Um, but as we are 
beginning to look internally, the neck would be stripped. I would look systematically at the neck muscles um, and I would also examine the neck structures, so the bones in the neck and the cartilage in the neck. So even though we're looking at potentially blunt force injury in this case, I've had kind of several cases in the past where there has been blunt force injury, but there's also been neck compression. So often the mode of killing someone crosses over to different parameters. So you have to always bear that in mind that you have to make sure you're ruling out every possibility when you're doing the postmortem. And then the internal examination on the chest and the kind of abdomen will be really important, especially as if I assume there are going to be uh, marks that are going to be injuries so I need to know what those injuries are doing how they're following through what they're if anything they've injured internally have they caused significant bleeding to any big structures have they gone through the heart have they gone through the lungs have they gone through the liver if I am seeing injuries externally I have to track them and see exactly what's happening internally because ultimately I'm looking for a cause of death and Causes of death, as like I said, aren't the injuries that are seen externally. It's what they're doing internally. So in this case, if it is significant, um, if there's no obvious traumatic brain injury, but she has a lot of bleeding injuries to the, the face and there's a lot of blood at the, the scene, then it would be blood loss from blunt force facial or blood force facial and head injuries would be the kind of cause of death I would be looking at. If when I'm looking at the chest and abdomen, the implement that's been used, an implement that has been used to create these um, defects in the on the skin, have gone through and punctured the heart, and the heart's bled into the sac that surrounds the heart. Then that's why she's died. Or if they've punctured the liver and the liver's bled into the abdomen, it's it's actually working out what damage internally has has happened because that's ultimately what the cause of death is. And we're not just looking at injuries as well. We're looking at the organs for natural disease because, I mean, it may be in this case unlikely, but it's a possibility that she's got significant heart disease. And it, it may be that she's got some injuries to her head that would have bled, but I wouldn't imagine to an extent that would have definitely killed her, but she's got heart disease. And if you've got significant heart disease, putting any extra strain on that heart from something like blood loss makes the heart having to work that bit harder to oxygenate your organs and that can just be enough to to tip someone into cardiac arrest and cause their death so there will be cases out there where it's not necessarily the injuries that have been inflicted by the perpetrator on their own that have killed the person but this the, the person has some sort of natural disease that's been enough to to tip them over the edge and in scots law you take an individual as you find them. And if you choose to stab someone who um, also has heart disease and the stab wound you've inflicted on you or I, who doesn't have heart disease, wouldn't have killed us. If they have died because they have that heart disease, but they've been stabbed and they've bled from that, then that is a, that is a homicide case. So it is really important to also have look at the organs for natural disease as well because that may fit into the the picture depending on the case so once we've done our our full external examination our full internal examination I would hope 
Um, although it's not all, always possible, and we I do do homicide cases where at the end of it, we just don't have enough to know exactly what's going on. So we're going away to do various investigations like histology, like toxicology, neuropathology, other investigations that are at hand to us. And we may unascertain the case in the first instance, but that will always be pending investigations. And kind of 99% of the time when we've got everything to pull together, we will give a, a definite cause of death and that will change. But it's not always that we can give a definite cause of death at the time of, of post-mortem. But that's obviously what we, what we hope to do, if we can. In the Jane Milne case, the fact of the post-mortem being less than thorough was something which troubled Dr Sturrock. After the post-mortem examination was over, I returned with Chief Constable Semple to Brote Ferry. Chief Constable Semple went away to London on 6th November 1012, in connection with this case. During his absence, I could not get the idea out of my head that the fork had something to do with the murder. Mr Semple returned on 16th November, and on 18th November I met Mr Semple and Lieutenant Trench in Brook Street. I stopped and asked them if Miss Milne's clothing had been examined, because if not, they should do so, if only to gratify my curiosity, as I thought the fork had something to do with the murder, and I wished the clothes to be carefully examined for marks. They stated that the clothing had been examined, but that no special inspection had been made to see whether there were such marks. Accordingly, on Tuesday 19th October, along with Lieutenant Trench and Sergeant Forbes, I saw the clothing, and it was found to be punctured by marks corresponding to the prongs of the fork. There were 20 punctures on the back, representing 10 stabs, 8 punctures representing 4 stabs on the right breast, 2 punctures representing 1 stab on the left breast, just over the heart, and 2 punctures on the right wrist, representing 1 stab. These punctures went through all the clothing, from blouse to flannelette chemise inclusive, while the punctures on the wrist were through the sleeves of the blouse. The punctures on the back and breasts were above the line of the corset. I requested Mr Semple to send for the Procurator Fiscal and Dr Templeman, as I wished to inform them of the existence of these punctures, and I had a meeting with them at Brote Ferry on Tuesday 19th November, when they were shown the punctures in the clothing. By the time the punctures in the clothing had been discovered, Jean Milne's body had been buried, so couldn't be re-examined. For forensic pathologist Dr Kerry-Ann Shearer, the marks in the clothing raises questions about how the post-mortem was conducted. There wasn't any mention of any injuries to the body. They've obviously documented 10 defects on the back and several defects over the right breast and in the um, wrist of one of the sleeves as well. But nobody's saying that there are any corresponding defects on the body. Um, they talk about the fork potentially being the cause of these which uh, I, I mean I, that that's a, a fair um, assumption to make the poker is another possibility they have this poker that's broken um, it can make defects so there's there's lot there's lots of uh, possibilities there but it is it is quite interesting that it all it is all just being completely dismissed and not being kind of looked at properly and the fact that we don't have a description it may very well be there is nothing on the body but I was, it would seem highly unlikely that if something, an implement has been used to penetrate, and it talks about going through, going through more than one level of clothing, 
why you wouldn't see corresponding marks even superficially on the skin makes absolutely no sense and it didn't sound as if she was severely decomposed that that would cover up things but again there's not much of a description of what they're seeing anyway so it's kind of impossible to say. For Lieutenant John Trench the evidence that the carving fork had been used against Jean Milne gave him more information to try and piece together exactly what happened. While keeping an open mind in the murder, I inclined strongly to the theory that robbery was the motive of the crime and that probably the person who committed it had slipped into the house by the front door while Miss Milne was in the grounds collecting roses and pieces of holly to decorate the dining room table. As numerous dishes on the table contained roses and other flowers, and that probably Miss Milne, on coming into the house, discovered the person in the dining room and threatened to telephone for the police when her assailant seized the carving fork, which may have been lying on the sideboard, or the drawer may have been open a little, showing the weapon, and drove it repeatedly into her back. And as she spun round, drove it into her body, as shown by the various punctures in her clothing finishing his ghastly work by battering her head with the poker. The two curtain cords with which the deceased lady's legs were tied undoubtedly came from the curtains hanging in the lobby leading to the hall. I examined the whole of the house, but could find nothing like them in any of the various apartments. The explanation of one of the curtain cords being found halfway up the stairs may be explained by assuming that the deceased had run partly up the stairs, pursued by her assailant, whose intention may have been to tie her up, and that, in the struggle with her assailant, he may have dropped one of the cords where it was found on the stair. There is no doubt that the deceased lady made a desperate fight with her assailant, and that her murder was of a particularly brutal nature such as might have been committed by a maniac or a foreigner. In the next episode of Inside Forensic Science, the police start to try and piece together when Jean Milne was killed and turn their attention to London in search of that maniac or foreigner they think must be responsible. So it's the Chief Constable of Brotty Ferry who is leading the investigation, who actually, if you, if you think about it, also has the responsibility prior to the crime of keeping everyone safe. And you do wonder whether, you know, there is no way that I couldn't have been doing my job and that someone within the community under my nose um, committed this crime. It had to be someone who's come in from outside who I didn't know who's committed. You know, you, you, you could you could kind of read between the lines there that actually this is such a safe community and we've made it a safe community. Actually, it has to be someone from outside. In episode three of Inside Forensic Science podcast, the readings were by Mark Stephen, Dan Holland, Andrew Thompson and David Stenhouse. The researcher was Heather Duran and the consultant was Pauline Mack. The narrator was me, Penny Latin. Inside Forensic Science is an adventurous audio limited production for the Levy-Hume Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee and is funded by the Levy-Hume Trust.